right. Thank you, David. Uh, good evening to everybody. You guys really are way back there. But, uh, it is, you did not miss them. There are no notes this evening. I apologize. But now you can write down whatever you want. You can doodle. You can, you can, you can write whatever you want, so, if you can find a piece of paper. So, uh, yes, Owen is away this evening, and so he had asked me to come by and, um, and share a few words. And so we'll probably take a break. Uh, from Matthew, I'll let him continue that and pick up where he likes. But um, so, so tonight, I want to share with you a passage that is um, just one that's dear to me. Like it is, it is always uh, one I keep really right on top of the toolbox. It's one I go to often um, to renew my joy, renew my efforts to provide encouragement. And so, I wanted to share it with you all tonight. Um, as well as just a, a few thoughts. So we'll be in Jude, so you're welcome to, to turn over there whenever, uh, whenever you're ready. Um, but before we read our verses, I think it's, I think it's always helpful, um, especially with the way we're going to do it tonight, because we'll just be reading the very end of the letter. Um, it's helpful to know what the letter is, where, where it's coming from, what some of the background um, information is. Obviously, uh, you can assume that this is a letter most likely written by Jude, um, who identifies himself as the brother of James. We most likely know that to be uh, James and, and Jude, the brothers of Jesus. Okay, and so I, I do want to point out a little bit, um, as you look at, at verse 1 there, you see how he words who he is, right? He says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So, so kind of intentionally, he's trying not to draw attention to his own position as, you know, he, he could be kind of bragging like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm one of Jesus's brothers. I'm, I'm important. I'm a big guy. But he, he doesn't do that. He sees very much first that Jesus is his Lord, is his master, um, much more than he's, you know, than he's the brother, um, even having grown up with him and being in the family. He wants it clear that Jesus is, is bigger than that, is, is more than that. And so he words that uh, really specifically. And he even takes um, growing up in, in a Jewish tradition, he takes what would have been a common phrase, a, a bondservant of God, and he, he Christianizes it. He says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which for us, that, that sounds like very, very normal language, but for those who grew up in the Jewish tradition who, where you know, things like monotheism is a, is a central foundational point, that really would have thrown people off to hear that, to hear him basically saying Jesus Christ is God. That would have been, at this time, still a fairly new concept, still one that, that caused some issues. So it was a big deal. He's, he's really trying to make sure that Christ is at the center and is at the height of, of what he's talking about. So that's, that's who wrote this. It's Jude. Um, the audience, we don't really know. So he doesn't specifically identify a particular group of people. We can learn some things, obviously, from the context, uh, most likely, or really in all, um, in all of our guests, it would be that he's writing to believers. He seems to be writing to other Christians. And in simple terms, the, the, the purpose of his letter is that there are those who have come within the church. They've kind of uh, embedded themselves within the body and then have begun to teach heresy, to, to be false teachers, um, ones that don't follow after the true doctrine of the gospel. If you read the whole letter, um, you'll find 
these people are not good people, right? They're, they're godless. They're mentioned as immoral. They deny Jesus. Um, they're clearly living their life, using their life and their body for simply their own pleasures and not for uh, the gospel. Just on and on, there's a laundry list of problems um, with these people. And, and the concern that Jude obviously has is that that false teaching, that mindset, and that way of living is going to spread out, and it is going to cause, cause other believers to be led astray. And so he wants to, he wants to really point out that there's a, a problem, and he, he doesn't hold back. I mean, he, he calls for judgment um, on these people. He has, he has some incredibly strong language, so you can go back. We won't study all of that tonight, but you can go back and kind of read through what he's, what he's dealing with. Um, one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting about this letter, if you've ever read Jude and 2 Peter um, close together, side by side, one right after the other, you're going to realize that they're incredibly similar. So they're not, they're not copies, right? It's, it's not a copy-paste scenario, but they are very similar, and they have two different authors. We can only speculate as to how that played out and, and, and why it happened that way. Um, most would probably agree that Peter, that Jude wrote his letter first, and then Peter, being close to him, working with him, read the letter, was inspired by the ideas, and used that inspiration to write his letter. Um, now, anytime there's, there's a situation in Scripture where we don't know exactly how it played out, I always kind of like to find some of the more maybe creative or interesting answers. doesn't mean they're true. It just means they're kind of interesting to learn about. Um, one, of the, one of the thoughts that floats around out there on why these two are similar are tied into that idea that, that Jude and Peter knew each other, they worked closely together, they were friends, and that Peter might have asked Jude to write Second Peter, right? That he, that he knew his, what he wanted to communicate, the message that he wanted to be. It was certainly Peter's words, thoughts, but he asked Jude to help him basically get it down and on paper, and in, in this discussion, Jude decided, you know what, I know some other people who need to hear this message, and so he pauses, he writes Jude of the same topic and of the same theme, sends it out, and then finishes the letter in Second Peter. I'm not saying that's what happened, I just always find it interesting to see uh, what potential, you know, what potential scenarios could have led to two letters uh, that, are, that are so similar, but most people agree, Peter wrote one, Jude wrote the other, probably inspired by one or the other, depending on how, kind of depending on how the timeline um, walked out. But the letter, most of the letter, geared and aimed at dealing with the problem of false teachers within the church. And so once you get past those topics, we'll find the verses that we're going to look at tonight, which is verses 24 and 25. It's the very, <clears throat> excuse me, it's the very end of the letter. And this is what's known as the doxology. So um, you've probably heard the song that, you know, we call the doxology. There's actually more than one doxology. A doxology is essentially a hymn or a statement of praise to God. It's, it's centered on who God is and praising him for what he, what he does, who he is in his nature. <clears throat> and it might seem, sometimes at first glance, doxologies can kind of seem like that's just how they finished the letter. It's not really tied to the rest of the letter. It's just... That's almost like writing sincerely so-and-so that that's what it is. But if you pay close attention, you compare the content of a letter with the doxology that follows, you'll see that often the doxology is really tied 
to the content of, of the letter, that, it, that those two things go together, and that we're praising God because of the content that is dealt with um, elsewhere in the letter. And Jude's in particular is, is interesting because he draws a lot of attention to the doxology. He doesn't end his letter like most New Testament authors finish their letters. Usually there's kind of personal updates, prayer requests, um, you know, last-minute instructions that are more kind of detail-oriented than, than spiritually-oriented. Um, but that's not, what, that's not what Jude does. He puts the doxology there, and he wants everyone to walk away with that being the last thing, the impression on their mind, what, what really they take away and how they, how they interpret and feel about the rest of the letter is, is to be done through the lens of this doxology. And so tonight, I want us to spend just some time unpacking this doxology, hearing what it is and what it means, what it can mean to us, how it can encourage us. So let's read in verse 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So it begins essentially with the promise, right? That there's a promise being made to us here. Um, and, and as we break this, this passage down, uh, we can see that this is even some of the, some of the sweetest words that can exist for, for a Christian. For the person who gets to claim this promise, this is, this is powerful stuff. This is big stuff. And, and in, in entirely a, a new way, he talks about this idea of being kept, Right, so it's not the first time in the book he or in the letter he uses the word kept, but here he says we're being kept. Well, what does that what does that mean? Right? What are what are we being kept for? What are we being kept from? Why would he use language um, like that? We need to be kept because we, as sinners, without the intervention, without the outside intervention of the Holy Spirit. We have no ability whatsoever to remain in the faith. We bring nothing to that table. We have to be kept or we won't last. We won't, we won't make it. We won't finish the race. However you want to think about it, we, we're not going to do well if we're not kept. It is a necessity that we be kept. The word here is, it's actually an active verb. So it's, it's, it's not past tense. It's something that is, that's ongoing. It's the Holy Spirit getting involved daily in your life. So, so how does being kept play out? It plays out any time that the Holy Spirit moves in your life, any time you're able to resist temptation, any time you're able to go, go after the things that God has called you to, that is you being kept. That is the Holy Spirit working in you and keeping you. And so what Jude is saying here is that if you're not kept, you will fall away. You will fail to love your spouse and your family. You will neglect your duties and, and your responsibilities to your church family. Um, you will dive headfirst into those sins that your, your flesh desires and your flesh wants. If you're not being kept, all of those things will, will happen. It's, it's not a question mark. That is, that is what happens. And so if he's not active in our salvation, none of us would be Christians. That, that if he's not actively keeping us, tomorrow morning we would wake up 
not Christians because he's not working in us. We are entirely dependent on him and his work. And it's, like I said, it's an ongoing work. Um, it's not something that just happens one time at a, at a moment of conversion, although that's an important time and, and a lot happens there. But it's not something that just happens there. It's something that happens on an ongoing basis daily, minute by minute, hour by hour. He continues to keep us. And we see, we see evidence of that in, in other places in Scripture. Philippians chapter 1 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So there was a beginning of a good work, and there was bringing it to completion. Right? That's a, that's a process. That's an ongoing thing. First John kind of looks at the, at the flip side. If you're, not, if you're not kept, it says, they went out from us. He's talking about false teachers, false believers. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. <clears throat> For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So what we're seeing here is that something must continue in us for us to stay in the faith, for us not to fall away. In order to determine that our conversion, our Christianity, our, our salvation was authentic. So just to be clear, I, I always want to, if we can take a pause for a second, I want to be clear. I'm in no way suggesting that you can lose your salvation. So I'm not talking about a situation where you can become a believer and then someday you'll fall away and you're no longer a believer. What I'm saying is if you, if you can look at, look at a life, look at someone who you know, has some experience, believes that they are a Christian, and at some point in their life abandons the faith, right? Walks away fully embraces their sin, never returns to repentance, denies the faith, denies the work of the cross, what we're saying is not that that person lost their salvation, but that that person was not a believer to begin with, that their conversion experience or whatever it is they thought happened was not authentic. And so that's what we're talking about here is that there's that danger of becoming like those who prove their conversion not to be authentic, not to be real, and not to be something that leads to the Holy Spirit working in their life and keeping them, sustaining them in the faith. So that's the first kind of key word you see there is that idea of being kept. What are we being kept from? Well, it talks about the active work of the Holy Spirit keeping us from stumbling. And I don't think, stumbling is kind of a, a word, falling, your, your translation might have the word falling or something like it. Um, stumbling, I, I'm not sure it even captures the weight of the word that's being communicated here, of, of what he's trying to say. <laughs> I don't think he's talking about your average daily struggle with sin, okay? And I'm, I'm in no way downplaying sin of any kind, um, but I think what he's talking about here is that going out idea that we saw in 1 John. Those who actually abandon the faith, who, who walk fully away, who embrace false doctrine and, and false teaching, because there's a difference there's a difference between going through a season where, man, sin just seems to have you, right? You keep, you're trying, but, but you just keep falling. Sin is, is winning more battles than you, know, than you want. There's a difference between that kind of season and, and abandoning the faith, right? We, we can all see that those are, those are two distinct things. You can be a believer in this scenario. This person is, is not a believer. And so what we're seeing here is Jude is talking about falling into sin never to return. 
never to repent, never to come back to Christ or the faith. So what he's saying is we are not able to keep ourselves. We don't have the ability in ourselves to keep from getting to that point, but we can praise God because for those who have experienced true, authentic conversion and salvation, he will. He will keep you. It's not a, it's not a question mark. It's not a maybe. He's going to keep you, and so we can rejoice that he will keep us from getting to the point where we would, <clears throat> where we would fall away. But that's that's not even all. That's, that's not the entirety of the promise that we get here. We get even more in the next line because then it says we are presented blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I doubt that I have to spend a lot of time making a case for the fact that we are not blameless. I think most of us are probably honest enough with ourselves to say, yeah, blameless is probably not a word I would use to, to describe my life. I, I, I know I certainly can't. Um, but it goes on, e- even really a step further, not just blameless, not, not just kind of this out there idea of what blameless means, but he even says, he even compares that blameless to something else. What that blameless is up against, we're, we're a people, we like to kind of compare ourselves, right? We like to we look around at the people around us and we like to we like to compare. Specifically, we like to find those who aren't doing as well as we are and feel better about ourselves, right? We, we like to find somebody who's, you know, quote, doing worse, uh, sinning more than we are, and that kind of gives us a little bit of comfort, right? We don't want to admit that, but it, it makes us feel a little bit better about who we are. I'm not mean to my family like this person is, so I'm probably okay. I don't, I don't cheat on my taxes like my coworker. So I can, I can feel okay about doing this or, or doing that about where I am. That's not how it works because we're not being compared to each other. Right? We're not comparing ourselves to those at our level. We're being compared to the presence of the Father. Right? We are miles and miles and miles from the idea of being blameless. And for us to fully grasp and fully appreciate what that means, we, we have to understand just how big that gap is. I heard a, I heard a guy on a podcast recently um, explain a, the idea. He was talking about best-selling books. Um, does anybody know what the best-selling book in the history of the world is? That's the Bible, okay? This, we, we should know that here, all right? It is the best-selling book. But what I, what I didn't know until he, he shared about this was by how much it's the best-selling book. So um, as, as he explains it, if you, if you Google, you know, best-selling books of all time in the world, um, you won't see the Bible on that list, right? What you'll see, uh, I think there's a, there's a book out of, out of China that at one time was a um, government mandate that everybody had to have. It was from, you know, the time of Mao and things like that. And then you'll see, you know, you'll see Lord of the Rings, um, what's the C.S. Lewis? Chronicles of Narnia. You know, you see Chronicle, you'll see Harry Potter, the Harry Potter series, and things. You'll see books like that. 400, 500, 600 million, somewhere in there. What's not on the list is the Bible. And the Bible is estimated to be, uh, to have sold about five to six billion copies. Right? So that it's not even worth putting in the same category as the other books because it outsells them all by about 5 billion copies. It's got that big of a margin of error. And I thought, 
even though we, of course, can't quantify how blameless or not blameless we are, I thought, that's a good picture. We're about five billion whatever points from being blameless, right? We're just not, not even close. And so the truth that we see here is we're not being compared to the other books. We're, we're being compared to the top. We're being compared to the glory of the Father. And we don't, we don't bring up that gap so that we feel bad about ourselves. That, that's not meant to just send us into depression and say, wow, that's, you know, that idea of being blameless, being perfect, that's so far off in the distance, I'll never get there. Right? That, that's not the point of knowing how big that gap is. The point of knowing how big that gap is is so that we can appreciate the fact that we have it, that that gap has been squished together and we are, we are right there, that we own, we have that credit of being perfect, of being blameless. And of course, we know not because we, we got there, not because we worked really hard and we got there, but because it was gifted to us. We have the absolute perfection of the Father as given to us by Christ. And so the only, the only way that we can respond to that, the only possible response a Christian could have to that is, is what? It's great joy. It's overwhelming rejoice, right? And, and we see that in verse 24. It says, we should be joyful of the fact that we are no one Right? We're a worthless people. We're bound to our sin. We're bound to a rejection of God. And yet, we've been freed from that. We've been given infinite and perfect righteousness in the sight of our holy and perfect Father because of what Christ has done. That's, that's reason to celebrate. Right? That, that's reason to have great joy and to constantly have joy and to be a source of encouragement no matter what we're dealing with whether it be sin or just the difficult circumstances of the world this is something that we can cling to and have great joy but i think what happens to us a lot of times when we read something like this passage when we read a truth as powerful as this one sometimes we walk away like we just read the ingredients on a on a food package Right? We're, we're almost bored with the idea. Now, we've heard that before. Right? We, we know the gospel. And, and we, can, we can actually read something like that and walk away unchanged, totally unfazed by what we just read because we aren't finding our joy in the Lord. And I think the reason for that is because Christians, God's, God's people throughout history, have a terrible, terrible memory. Over and over and over again, you're reading in Scripture, you're reading the history, and you're like, did these people forget what God has just done? Right? You, you see examples of that all throughout, particularly the Old Testament. You just see them forget time and time again what God has done and who he is. And so what we can't forget is not only the promise, right? The, the promise matters, but what we can't forget is the source of that promise. I, uh, I had a friend one time tell a story about how they were, um, they're at home, obviously a, a asleep at the time, and they get a phone call, and it's like six, six o'clock in the morning. And they get a phone call, and it's a strange number, and as we all would do, you answer, right? That's, a, that's kind of a scary phone call. You don't know where that, that might be coming from. And so they answer the phone, and they say, hi, this is, this is John from so-and-so company. I just wanted to call and tell you, you have won our grand prize. 
<laughs> so they said they were kind of quiet for a second. It's, it's 6 a.m. Yes, ma'am, I, I know, but you are a grand prize winner. We thought we'd, you know, you'd want to know and that you'd be excited to know you've, you've won our grand prize. So there was another pause. It's 6 a.m. and hangs up the phone, right? And so the question is, why hang up the phone? We, we have, we've all been in that situation, right? We've gotten the email that says, hey, send me a thousand bucks and I'll, I'll send you 5,000, right? These, these kind of random, just totally don't make any sense promises. We don't return those emails, right? We hang up the phone when, when that person calls. Why? Why did, you know, why did my friend jump out of bed just pumped that they had won whatever prize John was handing out that day? Because we know the source. The source is not trustworthy. We, we know that, that, that this, is, this is a scam. We, we've heard that. We know from experience that this is not truthful. The source, the person who's calling me is no one I can trust. And so therefore, their promise is worthless. Right? If we don't trust the source, we can't possibly trust the promise. But on the flip side, if we know the source, if the source is someone that we trust, who has been there time and time again, who has the ability to accomplish whatever the promise is, we can also have faith in the promise. If we trust the source, we can have faith in the promise. It's worthy to be trusted. And so for us to claim this promise, to, to benefit, to be encouraged by a promise like this, we have to remind ourselves who the source is, just how powerful, just how awesome the source of the promise is. I was, I was teaching recently in Hebrews and, um, and was reminded of a, a verse in, in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. I, I love the way that's worded. So God is making a promise to Abraham. Hey, you are going to have many offspring. You're going to be the father of, of many nations. We know that comes to fruition. But God, wanting and desiring to kind of almost double down on the promise, right, bring a guarantee to the promise, knows that there's nothing else in existence more valuable, more trustworthy than himself. That in and of himself, he is the most valuable thing there is. And so in order to make, make that promise make sense, he said, I promise by me I'm going to do this, that this will be accomplished through you and your family. He swears by who he is. That's how, that's how big our God is. That's how perfect he is, that he would, he would look at everything and say, I am the only one I'm the only thing I can swear by, the only person to swear by that means anything to bring value to this promise. Um, there's a song that came out a couple of years ago called um, All Because of Christ. And it, it opens with just what I think is a, a great line to illustrate this. It says, who could stand amidst the wind and waves except the one who made them to obey? Right? God is the only one who can stand up to the wind and waves. Why? He created them. They do what he says. No one else can claim something like that. He is the ultimate source of power and authority. He's the one who makes them obey. Of course, he can, he can survive any of the trials, any of the struggles that we walk through because he's in control. He controls all things. His authority has no bound. He does it all. 
And so what does that, what does that tell us when we're reading that, when we're understanding that in, in the context of a promise that he makes to us, an encouragement that he gives to us, that, that not only does he have the power to keep us, but he actually chooses to exercise that power. Of course, we can't, you know, we can't forget he's not, he's not bound to do that for us. He can have the power and not keep us, but he chooses to. And then in verse 25, we see because of that, he deserves glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Okay, th- this is more than just a repetitive sentence, right? He, he didn't just pull out a thesaurus here and say, hey, what are some, what are some synonyms? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get at least four words to describe God here. No, he's using those four words, each in their own context, each with their own meaning to explain the completeness by which God is good and God is powerful and God is above all things. It takes four words and more, right? One word wouldn't accomplish what he's trying to explain, what he's trying to communicate here. And so that's why you see those multiple words. Because of the work that God does for us, because he keeps us, Day in and day out, over and over and over again, he deserves all glory, all honor, all praise. Right? He is to be recognized and remembered by us as greater than all things. He deserves more honor than all things. He, he has authority over all things. We're to find joy in giving him that glory because we know who he is and what he has done for us. Right, David in, in Psalm 8 gives a famous, a, a popular description, but I think a, a really good example of what this mindset is. That if we're to fight for a mindset that understands who God is and who we are in relation to him, it, it's in Psalm chapter 8. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whoever passes through the paths of the seas. So David is is reflecting and understanding how small he is, And how great of a blessing it is that God would care for him, that God would give him responsibility, that God would keep him alive and bring salvation to him. So that he he, he would proclaim in verse 9, how great is your name in all the earth. David shows us the only possible response to understanding who we are and who God is and what he has done for us. He gives us that example because of our Father, finding joy in what the Father has done for us. So for us, what is our call? If, if this is new knowledge to us, or, or maybe just renewed, a reminder of being, of being kept, how do we respond? If you back up in Jude to verse 21, I think you'll see, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, that that might be confusing, right? Because in verse 24, we saw who keeps us. God, 
We're kept, right? We're, we're, we're passive in that process. Here it says, keep yourselves, right? Those aren't a contradiction. What it is is those things work together. We are called to pursue after God, to put ourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit will move in us and keep us, right? Anything that we accomplish, right? Any good that we do, um, right? If you share your faith with a non-believer and, and they respond, they, they convert, they pursue after Christ, how would you say, would you say, I saved that person? No. You, of course you wouldn't say that. you say, Christ saved that person. You, you didn't really do anything, right? You didn't bring the power to the table. Christ did. And yet, you're still called to go share your faith with that person, right? That, that's still obedience. That's still us being a part of it. That's what this looks like, that when we keep ourselves, that is fighting to put ourselves in a position where the Lord can work, where the Spirit can move in us. I had a, a seminary professor have give us a, an example one time. It's Kind of weird, but I still remember it years later, um, so I guess it works. But he, he said, if you wanted to see uh, a semi-truck, right? If, you, if your goal was just, I really want to see a semi-truck, would you stand in your living room and wait for the semi-truck? Probably not, right? That's, a, that's an easy answer. No, you wouldn't. Where would you go? You'd go you know, to the interstate. You'd go to I-40. You'd go somewhere where semi-trucks typically are. And you'd, and you'd watch them. Well, it's the same thing with our faith, right? We're not in control of, of what happens. Of, we're not in control of what the Spirit is going to do or not do through us and in our lives. But we are called to put ourselves in that position, to go where the Spirit moves, right? And we know what those are. That's, that's being in the Word. That's being in fellowship with the body. That's being in prayer. That's repenting and confessing sin. It's, it's all of those things, those common means of grace that we have been given as a gift, because it is those things that allow the Spirit to move and to keep us. So we can stop looking to the world for our joy, for our satisfaction, and we look to the things of Christ. That's how we keep ourselves, and it is through that by which we are kept. 2 Corinthians 5, we're a new creation, right? This is not a small change or a little shift. We're a new creation. Just like it wouldn't make sense for us to, to eat spoiled meat when there, is a, when there is a good meal to be had, we have tasted the better things of Christ. Right? We have tasted what it means to be with him and to be kept by him. We can't return to those lesser things. And so we, that's the battle that we fight, is to remember who God is, remember what he's promised us, and to allow that to fuel our efforts, to fuel our desires and our passions for the things that he would, he would want us to. And so... We fight. We, we fight to keep ourselves in that knowledge and really to find comfort in that knowledge, to, to rest in it. That when we're, having a, when we're having a bad day, this is the kind of truth that you can rest in. Right? When you're struggling with your sin and you are, you are beaten for the millionth time by that sin and you don't think you will ever see progress, you can read a passage like this and know he's going to keep you. He's not going to let you fall away. He will hold you in his hand. Um, John Piper asked, asked this question. He was teaching on this passage, and he asked this question of, of a room full of pastors, and he, he just said, how do you know that tomorrow morning you'll still be a Christian? Right? That's, that's kind of a presumptuous thought for those who sin daily, right? To think that 
I'll probably still be a Christian. How do you know that? Well, the answer is not because I dot, dot, dot. Right? Not, not because I did this or I worked here or I helped this person or I read my Bible. It's, it's none of those things. When you ask that question, how do I know I'll be a Christian tomorrow? Our answer is given to us in Jude 24. Because he is able to keep me from stumbling, he is able to present me blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's where our hope lies, is in that truth, the power of that promise and the source of that promise that can't be taken away from us. That if you're a believer, you get to claim that. And you know that regardless of you and what you do and what you bring to the table, God will keep you. And that on that day, he will bring his work to completion. He will make you perfect and present you blameless before our Father. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, I've got a couple more things for us. We'll, we'll get together in some groups and, and pray together. But let me pray for us over this first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those gifts uh, that we are we're not worthy to, to receive. But God, we know that you love us. Forgive us for forgetting your power. Forgive us for forgetting who you are and the glory and the majesty that um, is owed to you. I pray that you would remind us daily just how good you are so that when we read of your promises in Scripture, when we think about the gospel and the truths of the, of the work of the cross, that we can put faith in those. We can have trust that those things will come to pass because of who you are because you have been faithful to your people time and time again. God, we love you. We ask that you would help us as we leave from here, that we would take that joy that comes from knowing you and tell others about you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.